Book Three, Sections Thirteen through Fourteen of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Three: The Henchmen of King Cole. Section Thirteen. Knowing these people well, Hal could measure the effect of the thunderbolt he had hurled among them. They were people to whom good taste was the first of all the virtues. He knew how he was offending them. If he was to win them to the least extent, he must explain his presence here, a trespasser upon the property of the Harrigans. "'Percy,' he continued, "'you remember how you used to jump on me last year at college because I listened to muckrakers? You saw fit to take personal offense at it, you knew that their tales couldn't be true. But I wanted to see for myself, so I went to work in a coal-mine. I saw the explosion. I saw this man, Jeff Cotton, driving women and children away from the pit-mouth with blows and curses. I set out to help the men in the mine, and the marshal rushed me out of camp. He told me that if I didn't go about my business, something would happen to me on a dark night. And you see— this is a dark night. Hal waited to give young Harrigan a chance to grasp this situation and to take command, but apparently young Harrigan was not aware of the presence of the camp marshal and his revolver. Hal tried again. Evidently these men wouldn't have minded killing me. They fired at me just now. The marshal still has the revolver, and you can smell the powder smoke. "'So I took the liberty of entering your car, Percy. "'It was to save my life, and you'll have to excuse me.' "'The Coal King's son had here a sudden opportunity to be magnanimous. "'He made haste to avail himself of it. "'Of course, Hal,' he said, "'it was quite all right to come here. "'If our employees were behaving in such fashion, "'it was without authority, and they will surely pay for it.' He spoke with quiet certainty. It was the Harrigan Manor, and before it Jeff Cotton and the two mine-guards seemed to wither and shrink. "'Thank you, Percy,' said Hal. "'It's what I knew you'd say. I'm sorry to have disturbed your dinner-party.' "'Not at all, Hal. It was nothing of a party.' "'You see, Percy, it was not only to save myself, but the people in the mine. They are dying, and every moment is precious.' It will take a day at least to get to them, so they'll be at their last gasp. Whatever's to be done must be done at once. Again Hal waited, until the pause became awkward. The diners had so far been looking at him, but now they were looking at young Harrigan, and young Harrigan felt the change. "'I don't know just what you expect of me, Hal.' My father employs competent men to manage his business, and I certainly don't feel that I know enough to give them any suggestions. This again in the Harrigan manner, but it weakened before Hal's firm gaze. What can I do? You can give the order to open the mine, to reverse the fan and start it. That will draw out the smoke and gases, and the rescuers can go down. "'But how, I assure you, I have no authority to give such an order.' "'You must take the authority. "'Your father's in the east. "'The officers of the company are in their beds at home. "'You are here.' 
"'But I don't understand such things, Hal. "'I don't know anything of the situation, except what you tell me. "'And while I don't doubt your word, "'any man may make a mistake in such a situation.' "'Come and see for yourself, Percy. "'That's all I ask, and it's easy enough. "'Here is your train. "'Your engine with steam up. "'Have us switched on to the North Valley branch, "'and we can be at the mine in half an hour. "'Then let me take you to the men who know, "'men who've been working all their lives in mines, "'who've seen accidents like this many times, "'and who will tell you the truth, "'that there's a chance of saving many lives.' and that the chance is being thrown away to save some thousands of dollars' worth of coal and timbers and track. But even if that's true, Hal, I have no power. If you come there, you can cut the red tape in one minute. What those bosses are doing is a thing that can only be done in darkness. Under the pressure of Hal's vehemence, the Harrigan manner was failing. The Coal King's son was becoming a bewildered and quite ordinary youth. But there was a power greater than Hal behind him. He shook his head. It's the old man's business, Hal. I've no right to butt in. The other, in his desperate need, turned to the rest of the party. His gaze, moving from one face to another, rested upon the magazine-cover countenance, with the brown eyes wide open, full of wonder. "'Jesse, what do you think about it?' The girl started, and distress leaped into her face. "'How do you mean, Hal?' "'Tell him he ought to save those lives.' The moments seemed ages as Hal waited. It was a test, he realized. The brown eyes dropped. "'I don't understand such things, Hal.' "'But, Jesse, I am explaining them. "'Here are men and boys being suffocated to death "'in order to save a little money. "'Isn't that plain?' "'But how can I know, Hal?' "'I'm giving you my word, Jesse. "'Surely I wouldn't appeal to you unless I knew.' "'Still she hesitated, "'and there came a swift note of feeling into his voice. "'Jesse, dear!' As if under a spell, the girl's eyes were raised to his. He saw a scarlet flame of embarrassment spreading over her throat and cheeks. "'Jessie, I know, it seems an intolerable thing to ask. You've never been rude to a friend. But I remember once you forgot your good manners, when you saw a rough fellow on the street beating an old drudge horse. Don't you remember how you rushed at him, like a wild thing?' And now, think of it, dear, here are old drudge creatures being tortured to death, but not horses, working men. Still the girl gazed at him. He could read grief, dismay in her eyes. He saw tears steal from them and stream down her cheeks. Oh, I don't know, I don't know, she cried, and hid her face in her hands and began to sob aloud. End of section 13 Section 14 There was a painful pause. Hal's gaze traveled on, and came to a gray-haired lady in a black dinner gown, with a rope of pearls about her neck. "'Mrs. Curtis, surely you will advise him?' 
the gray-haired lady started. Was there no limit to his impudence? She had witnessed the torturing of Jessie. But Jessie was his fiancée. He had no such claim upon Mrs. Curtis. She answered with iciness in her tone. I could not undertake to dictate to my host in such a matter. Mrs. Curtis, you have founded a charity for the helping of stray cats and dogs. These words rose to Hal's lips, but he did not say them. His eyes moved on. Who else might help to bully a Harrigan? Next to Mrs. Curtis sat Reggie Porter, with a rose in the buttonhole of his dinner jacket. Hal knew the role in which Reggie was there, a kind of male chaperone, an assistant host, an admirer to the wealthy, a solace to the bored. Poor Reggie lived other people's lives, his soul perpetually a quiver with other people's excitements, with gossip, preparations for tea-parties, praise of tea-parties past. And always the soul was pushing, calculating, measuring opportunities, making up in tact and elegance for distressing lack of money. Hal got one swift glimpse of the face. The sharp little black moustaches seemed standing up with excitement, and in a flash of horrible intuition Hal read the situation. Reggie was expecting to be questioned, and had got ready an answer that would increase his social capital in the Harrigan family bank. Across the aisle sat Genevieve Halsey, tall, erect, built on the scale of a statue. You thought of the ox-eyed Juno, and imagined stately emotions, but when you came to know Genevieve you discovered that her mind was slow, and entirely occupied with herself. Next to her was Bob Creston, smooth-shaven, rosy-cheeked, exuding well-being, what is called a good fellow, with a wholesome ambition to win cups for his athletic club and to keep up the score of his rifle team of the state militia. Jolly Bob might have spoken, out of his good heart, but he was in love with a cousin of Percy's, Betty Gunnison, who sat across the table from him, and Hal saw her black eyes shining, her little fists clenched tightly, her lips pressed white. Hal understood Betty. She was one of the Harrigans, working at the Harrigan family task of making the children of a pack peddler into leaders in the younger set. Next sat Vivie Cass, whose talk was of horses and dogs and such ungirlish matters. Hal had discussed social questions in her presence, and heard her view expressed in one flashing sentence. If a man eats with his knife, I consider him my personal enemy. Over her shoulder peered the face of a man with pale eyes and yellow moustaches, Bert Atkins, cynical and world-weary, whom the papers referred to as a club man, and whom Hal's brother had called a tame cat. There was Dickie Everson, like Hal, a favorite of the ladies, but nothing more, Billy Harris, son of another coal man, Daisy, his sister, and Blanche Vagelman, whose father was old Peter's head lawyer, whose brother was the local counsel and publisher of the Pedro Star. 
So Hal's eyes moved from face to face, and his mind from personality to personality. It was like the unrolling of a scroll, a panorama of a world he had half forgotten. He had no time for reflection, but one impression came to him, swift and overwhelming. Once he had lived in this world and taken it as a matter of course. He had known these people, gone about with them. They had seemed friendly, obliging, a good sort of people on the whole. And now, what a change! They seemed no longer friendly. Was the change in them? Or was it Hal who had become cynical, so that he saw them in this terrifying new light, cold and unconcerned as the stars, about men who were dying a few miles away? Hal's eyes came back to the coal king's son, and he discovered that Percy was white with anger. "'I assure you, Hal, there's no use going on with this. I have no intention of letting myself be bulldozed.' Percy's gaze shifted with sudden purpose to the camp-marshal. "'Cotton, what do you say about this? Is Mr. Warner correct in his idea of the situation?' "'You know what such a man would say, Percy,' broke in Hal. "'I don't.' was the reply. I wish to know. What is it, Cotton? He's mistaken, Mr. Harrigan. The marshal's voice was sharp and defiant. In what way? The company's doing everything to get the mine open, and has been from the beginning. Oh, and there was triumph in Percy's voice. What is the cause of the delay? The fan was broken, and we had to send for a new one. It's a job to set it up. Such things can't be done in an hour. Percy turned to Hal. You see, there are two opinions, at least. Of course, cried Betty Gunnison, her black eyes snapping at Hal. She would have said more, but Hal interrupted, stepping closer to his host. Percy, he said in a low voice, come back here, please. I have a word to say to you alone. There was just a hint of menace in Hal's voice. His gaze went to the far end of the car, a space occupied only by two negro waiters. These retired in haste as the young men moved towards them, and so, having the coal king's son to himself, Hal went in to finish this fight. End of section 14